This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, do you remember the movie Hotel Rwanda? Yeah, no, I remember the movie. I mean, pretty popular when it came out. I think a lot of people, you know, brought attention to something that a lot of people hadn't been paying attention to. The Rwandan genocide, right? Yeah, yeah. So yes, I, I, I actually have not seen the movie. And this is where I'm a little bit embarrassed. I know that it's a movie that I, I should see. I just haven't. You don't have to be embarrassed. I mean, we're not all required to watch every. There's so much good content, movies, documentaries, things come out. It's okay, Michael. I just feel like it's just this spot in my life that I, I screwed up and I need to rectify. I just need to find the time. <laughs> well, it's still available. It's got Don Cheadle who stars in it, which like when I watch the Marvel stuff now, I always think of his character. But his character in the movie, if I can tell you a little about it, was this guy named Paul Recessa-Begina. And it's kind of like, a, it's a bit of a story like Schindler's List, essentially. He was a hotel owner who tried to save a lot of people using the, the power he had at that time during the genocide against the Tutsis in Rwanda at that time. And so it's a, it's just an incredible story. And he's this amazing humanitarian. And I think the thing that also just blows my mind is you watch a movie like that and he's alive today, right? Yeah. He's still walking around and doing stuff. No kidding. Uh, what's going on? Is there like an update? Like what's, what's, how is he today? Well, unfortunately, you know, I think sometimes one of the hard things in history and thinking about civics is that, you know, like the big event happens, right? You had this genocide against the Tutsis right. that happened in 1994. And so it's like, we focus on that, but the process of like, you know, rehabilitating a society, right? Figuring out what you do next is really hard. And um, essentially, you know, this, the, the person who led the a military of refugees back into Rwanda, this man named Paul Kagame, was the one who's still in charge today. And just recently, uh, Paul Rosasa-Begina had been living in Texas, and they literally tricked him into what? flying back to Rwanda, and they have charged him with terrorism charges because he spoke out against the Kagame administration for you know a lot of their kind of kind of totalitarian and tactics and things that they've used in recent years since they've been in charge. So he's like literally in jail now, and I'm like I think the thing that bugs me about it, Michael, is that I feel like we should all be talking about it and care, and there should be like worldwide like efforts to get him out of, yeah. of jail right like this is this great injustice of someone who's like an absolute hero but i think that's kind of the story of genocide too is crying out for people to care and want to do something so these things don't happen right isn't it the whole never again that we right. repeat over and over and over again right yeah and i think i've talked about on this episode i i took a class it was a life-changing class in, in my when i was an undergraduate student called genocide in the american response and it just looked mm -hmm. literally with the united states how we've responded and it's not great i it's know not that great when i was taking i took a class on the bosnian genocide and it was really tough like i know there was some of the state department who resigned because he was frustrated that he had to change language to say that it wasn't a genocide that was happening. So this way the U.S. wouldn't get involved and 
he resigned in protest. It's uh, it's heartbreaking, and it happens again and again. So, I yeah, I was a sponsor at my school. We we had a group called Stand, and it was an anti-genocide coalition of students. And I was the sponsor of that for I think five or six years. Um, and we literally tried to raise awareness about yeah both genocides and uh, humanitarian crises right that were mm-hmm. happening. And the students were awesome and really cared about that. And so we would have, we would have informational nights, like movie nights, right? After school where people would attend and, and watch movies. Like I think we showed Hotel Rwanda at one point, but then we would watched. follow it up with action. And we would talk at the end about like, what, what are the things people can do? Because I think a lot of times with genocides, people think it's like either or, like either we do everything or we do nothing. And they don't realize there's like things in between that are, that countries and, and citizens can do. Did you bring that, like, did you do like, discussed genocides in your in your classroom well and at the time period too it was around yeah we did it darfur was the genocide at the time when i was teaching that was really focused on and so we did a lot around that so i think the short answer is i think we just you know genocides are these almost unfathomable things where a group of people is targeted for extermination by another group too that's that's the it's the end goal is to get rid of them and i mean there's what what could be you know, more important to dedicate curriculum and time to in our schools than addressing and fighting against genocide. One of the things that I'm always interested in is like, so obviously like, well, I teach a world history class. And so it's very, you know, chronological. And oftentimes we use the the Holocaust because that's something that uh, most students know about kind of is like, almost like the benchmark. And I feel terrible saying that like, it's weird to say, like, this is kind of like the standard bearer, because I don't, like, when you're taught, when you're comparing genocide, I just, I feel a little bit awkward. And I always wonder if I'm doing it well, how to do it better. Like, I just, I'm using it as a lens to get it, like, talking about some of the commonalities and talking about some of the uniqueness, but I don't know if I'm doing it right, or if I'm, like, making one, privileging one over another. These are things that I just kind of battle with whenever I, you know, talk about genocide. Well, I think we should probably bring in some people who can help us think about how to teach about genocide, right? It's such an important topic. And so we're fortunate to have two great guests with us who are going to help us dive into how we can teach about this a little better. So we would like to welcome in Lauren Harris and Stephanie Reed. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We are thrilled to have you both on. So Lauren Harris and Stephanie have read, do you mind telling us a little bit about who, who you are and what's your background in education? And then we'll talk more about genocide in your research. Sure. So I'm Lauren MacArthur Harris. I'm an associate professor of history education at Arizona State University. And I'm a former ninth grade world history teacher. I taught in Arlington, Virginia. And my work focuses on curricular representations of history and how teachers teach history in schools. Hi, and my name is Stephanie Reed, and I'm an assistant professor of literacy education at the University of Montana in Missoula. And I crossed paths with Lauren at Arizona State University over the last four years. I spent 15 years teaching middle school language arts and reading, three years in the United Kingdom, and then 12 years in Wisconsin, after which I decided to get my doctorate and was really fortunate enough for most of those four, uh, four years to work with Dr. Lauren Harris here. My sister went to the University of Montana, so I have a soft spot for the Grizz. So she How bought me a hat. Do you have? 
I have many, you know that I have four sisters. So because okay. you're always talking yeah. about your sister being connected I know. to something where a previous episode we talked with somebody from the University of Washington. So but we haven't had anyone from the University of, of Colorado where my brother went. But yeah, my sister when she went to college, I always remember she bought me a, 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 a go grizz like hat and it didn't fit. And so like I just liked it so much I tried to make it fit by putting like lots of padding in it. And I think I looked very foolish in the end. I approve of their support for the Grizzlies. So thank you. <laughs> so the reason we're having the two of you on today is because you wrote an article that was published in Theory and Research and Social Education. So congratulations on that accomplishment. Thank you. We were excited. So, and it's titled Investigating Comparative Genocide Teaching in Two High School Classrooms. So can you tell us about this research project in the article? Sure. So this article had roots many years before at Arizona State University with a group of scholars called that we titled the Comparative Genocide Testimony Project. And this all got started. I have an appointment both in the history department at ASU and in the teacher's college. And so the person in the office next to me in the history department is, a, is Volker Benkart. He's a professor of German history. And we started talking one day and he was very interested in the ethics of comparative genocide from a research perspective. And another scholar in our school, Jason Bruner, who is a religious studies scholar, but has a lot of experience and expertise in uh, Rwandan culture and history. The three of us decided to pursue looking at comparative genocide, both as a pedagogical issue and also a research question. And we received a fellowship, an ethics fellowship from the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics to look at these questions. And that was back probably in 2016 or so. And so then we started doing workshops with teachers and we were focusing on using testimony to teach about genocide and to think about comparison in particular. So we focused on testimony, but then we also focused on comparative themes. And Volker and Jason took the lead in sort of developing some themes that you could apply to different genocides, themes like prejudice, violence, conformity, ideology. And that was sort of the basis of the work. So we were doing workshops with teachers and presentations and also started doing a little bit of publishing and then decided that we really wanted to get into classrooms. And that's when Stephanie came aboard. And she and I went into classrooms and observed teaching and uh, two classrooms and, and also interviewed the teachers. She had experience in English language arts teaching and research. And the classrooms that we happened to go into were actually English language arts classrooms. These were teachers who were teaching a, an elective on Holocaust literature and had the space to allow us into the classroom because the idea was that we had developed some resources that we wanted to see how they would be used in classrooms. And these teachers were willing to use the resources and to teach a week-long unit on comparative genocide, which consisted of the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide for this exploratory study. And one of the reasons why the English language arts context was so important to us and interesting to us is that when you look at 
research and where the Holocaust is being taught very frequently. It is indeed in middle school language arts or high school language arts classes. And so it's an important consideration when we consider um, genocide pedagogy in that the context for that instruction might not necessarily be social studies or history. So it's interesting. Obviously, I, I teach social studies. And so I do find it fascinating that, you know, this is being done more so in ELA. Is that because social studies are more focused on like the march of time aspect? And uh, whereas in English, you have the, I'm not going to say you have the luxury, but you do have uh, more of an open, you know, open curriculum. Maybe more thematic too, right? That's, like English, like, yeah. That's much a better way to say it. And I feel like, Talking from the English language arts perspective, our standards are really interesting because they tend to be skill oriented. And so content and topics aren't listed. So depending on the autonomy that our schools and our districts allow us and other teachers depends on what content or what text we read. And so the approach to genocide pedagogy from an English language arts perspective tends to be around text. So the Diary of Anne Frank, for example, is a centerpiece, Ellie Wiesel's Night, and also um, Art Spiegelman's Mouse as well, for example. So for us, the text tends to be the focal point. So something Michael mentioned earlier is that the, the Holocaust probably becomes somewhat of a like default for understanding genocide. Um, and you are doing comparisons here, which seems like really important, especially if students tend to have more of an understanding of the Holocaust. Can you tell us a little bit more about the ways that you, that you, you compare genocides and how, how you kind of dig into that, especially for teachers that may not have taught the you know, other genocides from the 20th century particularly? So in the, in the project, the Comparative Genocide Testimony Project that we've um, been working on for a few years, we really decided to focus on testimony as a sort of centerpiece of looking at genocide. So the individual stories and then within the larger context and to look at similarities and differences, but not comparing the genocides, sort of the pain of genocide, you know, one to another or creating some kind of hierarchy, but more to look at these themes that I mentioned before, prejudice, violence, ideology, can can students and teachers sort of identify places where they see those themes in two or more genocides? So that that's the approach we took. And so when we went into classrooms to look at how the teachers use that approach, we found that definitely the teachers were very interested in looking at testimony and the students were too. They were very moved by the testimonies the more challenging part of it was some of the themes that that students had a harder time identifying perhaps some of the themes as they listened to testimony or read a transcript of a testimony uh, ideology is one for example that was that was very hard for students to sort of identify and but the other challenge was that both teachers even though they had a lot of experience teaching about the holocaust and as we talk about in the article, one of the teachers was, is incredibly experienced in teaching about genocide, uh, other genocides as well. But they both were very hesitant about the comparative aspect. And they didn't want to, to for example, have the students comparing numbers of deaths or you know, that sort of thing. They were worried about that. But I think by, by focusing on the testimonies, 
and the sort of scaffolded approach with the themes that we presented, they ended up doing more comparison perhaps than they were comfortable with at the beginning of, of the time that we were in the classrooms. And in the article we show, the final thing that the students did was a graphic organizer that had them look at the similarities and then the difference and the larger context. And I think just that graphic visualization of you know, putting those pieces in helped with the comparison as well. I guess it's funny because when you're, that's part of one of the issues that I've always, that I've had, like, because I don't want to like minimize one or, and so I think it's fascinating that you're not just, you're not comparing, now you're comparing like, you're looking at ideology across the board. Like, I think that's an interesting way to go. And I'll definitely uh, think about this the next time I, next time I do that. Well, and if I can make one curriculum recommendation, a book that, I mean, just helped me tremendously was Samantha Powers, Samantha Powers, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. And that's the, that's the text I read. That was like one of the books I read in the, the college class that I took. But I think just even starting out about what genocide is, right? I think there's sometimes confusion about that because again, they think people think it looks like concentration camps only, right? But the, the UN declaration actually um, lists in multitude of ways um, which has, uh, you know, helps you understand kind of how you, how you can use the term specifically and also how even like things like, you know, Indian boarding schools, right, have been used as, as means to, to eradicate, you know, a culture and, and language and beliefs and can consist of a form of genocide. So what, what are some of the, the, the kind of the, I guess, lessons or approaches that, that you've seen in classrooms that have kind of been, been uh, more effective? And what are some of the problems you sometimes run into? I think definitely you were talking about definitions and then the UN declaration. And in the study we did, we basically presented uh, teachers with a set of materials and then asked them to choose from those materials. And part of our interest was what they chose. And one of the things we included was the, the, an article about the definition of genocide by the United Nations. United Nations, and both teachers chose to start the unit that way with that definition and to really have the students unpack that definition and talk about what they would add, you know, what did they see missing, what, you know, what surprised them and so forth. And they kept going back to the definition over the days of the unit. So I think that can be very powerful and very helpful. I think that, you know, part of what we ran into in the study was the challenge of presenting such a serious topic that is very hard for teachers to teach. It's emotional for the teachers and can be very emotional for the students, but not necessarily all the students in the same way or at the same time. And to do that in the context of a 50 minute class or you know, maybe a 90 minute class if you have block scheduling, when everything else is going on in the high school and the hallways and the students' lives and so forth. So that, you know, having the students really take this seriously and be in a, in a serious place, but then also weighing that against their lives and the high school that they're in. So one of the things we talk about in the, in the article is in one of the classrooms, the, they were doing a sort of end of the year senior most awards ceremony right before one of the classes that we observed. So the students come in and they're at a, a level of excitement and some of them are still wearing their sashes from this award ceremony. And then they have to very quickly get into very, very serious 
and, and troubling content. And so that's one of the challenges. And that's what we talk about in the paper, how both of the teachers really had to think about the emotional aspect and how to, how to weigh that against the content. And just adding on to that too, one of the teachers spoke about that emotional challenge and talked about how she felt she had to almost boundary the lesson. So begin the lesson by chatting with students about their lives now before approaching the comparative work and then transitioning them out of the comparative work in order to kind of send them on their way as an act of care. But then we also wondered how that contains it then within the lesson. And so it becomes something that's lesson bound and not something that continues out into their everyday lives. It becomes classwork and not life work. And so it was really interesting to see one of the teachers, both of them talked through their rationale for being interested in teaching the selective with their students. One teacher talked about how she wanted her students to be architects of change, to go out there and do something and to take action. And one of the other teachers, I think one of the most powerful moments for me when I was observing um, was she, in the last five minutes of one class, she actually called a senator about the Elie Wiesel Genocide and a Trustees Prevention Act and advocated for it. And she had a script on the board with the phone number for the students to use and showed just with just five minutes of time, you can take what you're learning and do something. And sure enough, students kind of took pictures of it with their cell phone, went home, and about 15 students had carried information from the lesson out into their lives beyond school and made that call to their senators and done something. And so both teachers were really concerned with finding ways to take this very complex emotional work to try and care for their students whilst also enabling their students to feel like they're doing something, um, bearing witness, becoming that Lowen Sontag talks about the chain of testimony, becoming kind of new links in that chain of testimony. And so I think that one of the most powerful things was to take this learning and then turn it into something actionable that students can do. I really appreciate that. Again, yeah, it's, it's, there, God, there's so many challenges with teaching about genocide. From one, you said it's again, how do you do this when you have a 50 minute class, right? Like even getting into the topic and getting out of the topic. I appreciate that teacher, like, like easing in and easing out of the topic because of, you know, kind of the gravity of what you're doing. And of course, I really appreciate testimony as a way of teaching about it because that allows you to really hear from those people. Uh, but then also around making change, you know, I think when you study genocide, you want to do something about it. And, and I think a lot of people can easily give up that there's nothing they can do. And so, uh, you know, one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately is just, well, who are the people who were the survivors of genocide and what do they want done? Right. I think turning to those groups is the, is oftentimes the best way to figure out what to do. And so, um, of course, calling people on specific bills and things like that can be really helpful. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate these, these kind of insights into some of the things that teachers were doing. I think of one other notable thing about both of the teachers in our study was the amount of, we call it in the article, professional tenacity that they employed in pursuing their own professional development. So they too had entire networks of people outside of us that they were also drawing from and pursuing, including survivors of genocide too. Both teachers had forged those connections and invited those voices in too. So I think that 
there's especially in that language arts context there's a lot of onus on teachers to go out and seek out those professional development and uh, forge those networks. So what advice do you have uh, for educators who want to do some comparative genocide or just want to talk about genocide in their classroom? What advice do you have? What tips? So I'd say that I think it helps to have points of comparison and think about what those will be as you ask the students to engage in the work. So as I as I mentioned, you know, for what we've been doing, we've been focusing on these themes and that that gives sort of a center point to really look at. So what is what does prejudice look like in these different contexts? I think that the context is so important. One of the things we ran into in this study was that because these students were in a Holocaust literature course and it was somewhat towards the end of the semester when both of these teachers taught this unit. So they clearly had much more knowledge of the Holocaust and very little knowledge of the Rwanda genocide going into the study. And uh, we had provided background information on the Rwanda genocide, but uh, the students didn't get into the, the history of the Rwanda genocide as much as um, they maybe should have before they engaged in the comparison. And so it became kind of a little bit one-sided for some students who, who really started seeing things through a Holocaust lens almost. And we could see that in the student work that we analyzed. So we have a companion article that is coming out this spring, I believe, in the history teacher, where we look closer at the student work. So the, the TRSE article really looks at the teachers. And, and what we saw when we looked at the student work was even in the graphic organizer I talked about earlier, you could see visually students using the Holocaust lens to look at the Rwandan genocide. And that wasn't always maybe the best strategy for what they were looking at. And so I would say really having that context piece there before they start the comparison is, is very important. And yeah, that would be what I would recommend. And I think for me, um, speaking from the English language arts perspective, it was such an incredible experience working with the interdisciplinary team at Arizona State University with scholars in history education, um, history, religious studies. And I think that it would be really valuable for teachers to seek out those transdisciplinary connections and build units together so that there is space to explore context while also, I mean, English language arts, we specialize in very focused analyses of text, which lends itself to testimony and the personal narratives that testimonies contain. But history educators can definitely support with the background. So for me, my tip would be seek out transdisciplinary connections and build things together, blur those lines that we've put in place between these subject areas. I really appreciate that. It's what are we doing that we're not doing more in an interdisciplinary social studies literacy work? You're exactly right. Like literacy allows you to really spend time thinking about themes and testimony and reading literature on it that we often don't have in social studies. And it's we've we've divided our school up and fragmented it in so many ways that we don't make these obvious connections. And this, of course, is is many topics, not just genocide, but I really appreciate um, what it can bring to this topic. So it's great advice. And it led to some really interesting student work. So the final page of the reporting form asked students about the value of testimony in classroom spaces. 
And there were a whole number of reporting forms where the students had indicated that this was good in a high school class and they're in an English language arts context, but that it was not good for historians looking to understand genocide with their rationale being that there wasn't enough information or facts. So they were aligning it with the English language arts context, but then struggling to do the historical work within that English language arts context. So kind of relationships between teachers and between disciplines, I think can really help students understand how our topic areas and our subject areas are all interconnected and related and that we can all support the work that each other do within those kind of socially constructed boundaries that we've put in place. Picking up on what Stephanie just said, part of the work that we had, that we had developed that this the students engaged in was completing a reporting form, which was from the perspective of looking at these testimonies and, and how, how did they align with the themes, but then also would they be useful for historians in learning about what happened? And then also would it be useful for teaching about what happened? So we developed the reporting form back at the beginning of our project as a way actually to get the community more involved in, in identifying testimonies that would be helpful for researchers and helpful for teachers. So that's actually, we had a small grant to do that work. And so that's where the reporting form came out. So the students were to analyze the testimony for it uh, for a different purpose. And so some of them said the testimonies weren't, would not be useful to historians because they didn't provide enough information, which really surprised us. And so yeah, I think it speaks to orienting the students in different kinds of evidence and what that can provide to tell a story. It's really helpful. And I'll also add a lot of, you know, the related organizations and museums related to um, the Holocaust, to the Armenian genocide, to the, the Tutsi, the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda to, you know, and to Cambodia often have really good websites that have uh, guidance too for teachers. And I think, I think what you all have is a plan, which is really important if you're going to teach about these topics, that's really well thought through, because if you kind of rush into it, it can, it can almost get to the point where you're just shocking students and they don't know what to do with that. And then you've talked about like some of the bad comparisons we can make between like, which was worse, which is not uh, a question that's that's ever I think worth asking in our curriculum because it doesn't it doesn't you know that's not the point the point is that everyone's uh, understanding these these should be we should want to address any genocide in any case of injustice. It's becoming really so. There's growing numbers of states are starting to require genocide instruction in schools. Arizona right now is in the process, for example, of introducing a bill to require the teaching of, quote, the Holocaust and other genocides at least twice from seventh grade to 12th grade. And I think at least 15 other states uh, have also have some kind of law on the books about teaching genocide or and or the Holocaust. So there's going to be a growing need for teachers to find good resources and so forth. I was part of a task force in Arizona with lots of different people in different organizations and universities and so forth to gather together resources for teachers for this new requirement that they they teach these things. And so that was an interesting experience, you know, gathering these resources and what could we provide to teachers, but then really 
and this was mentioned before, the challenge of time and the limited time, for example, history teachers, a world history teacher, for example, has to teach about genocide, maybe a couple days here and there, you know, so it's, it's very challenging. And so I think the interdisciplinary focus, looking at English language arts and history, and can, can we work together is, is really important. For our, our folks listening, will we could we make sure that the uh, a link to the resources are in the show notes that you use? Yes, absolutely. So the the resources we gathered for Arizona are are openly available, and um, there's there's resources, there's lectures by historians for the teachers' own background knowledge, and they can excerpt some of that for their students. There's powerpoints, and there are uh, book recommendations, movie recommendations, uh, and so and testimonies. So we can definitely link to that. And and we'll make sure to add a lot of these in the show notes. I know there's some books that have really affected me that I'll, I'll uh, coordinate with our guests today and add in the coordinates. I also um, authored a, sh- a chapter a couple of years ago about using uh, with Rebecca Christ, who's at, the, at Florida International University, about using his genocide documentaries about genocide. And so we had some we kind of thought about like the the, be- the kind of the be- wise practices for teaching about genocide and wise practices for using documentary. We kind of put those together and, and offered some questions that teachers can think through. So we'll add those into the show notes. So I just wanted to add to one other reason why this work is so important in terms of the comparative approach to some of the students in our studies, they were either junior or seniors in high school. And a number of students commented that without taking this Holocaust elective with an emphasis on the elective, this was something they chose to take and weren't required to take they would not have heard about the Rwandan genocide. There were students who thought that the Holocaust was the sole genocide that had taken place. And so I think that the comparative aspect of this helps students understand that genocide was not a one-off event and that it has happened before, it's happened since, and might well happen in the future too. And that, that always makes me think of the, the kind of famous Hitler quote, which I guess it's not that famous because a lot of people haven't heard of it. But he had said when, when they were even, you know, moving towards the, the final salute, the Nazis final solution towards the Jewish people, he had said, who, after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians, right? Saying people didn't really care. They didn't care that this last genocide happened. Why, why could we not get along with it? And that was, that's like one of, I, I showed my students that because it's just one of the most harrowing quotes that I've ever seen in history. I always get really, whenever we're talking about genocide in class, I do like personally get really sad, very morose. And so I, I make sure that on the, at least on the Friday, I get ice cream. And it's something really little, but it's something I have to look forward to that after school, I go and I get ice cream. I don't know if, if anyone else shares that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I remember, I remember one of the years when I was teaching world history, I decided because of the schedule to teach genocide as one unit of genocides that we had, you know, would have been in other places in the curriculum to teach it as one unit at the end of the year after they took this state exam and to really dig into it for a week. And it was incredibly powerful, but I realized that it was really, it was emotionally very hard on me, especially it was probably the second to last week of school. So this, it was hard for the students. It was hard for me. I, I felt the same, Michael. I just, you know, it's, it's emotionally draining for teachers and it's, it's really challenging for students. And so 
you know, I think, I think it's important to think about how, how to approach it, how to, how to um, care for your students and yourself in, in teaching these things that we, we have to teach these things. It's incredibly important, but there should probably be more preparation for teachers and how to teach such difficult histories, hard histories. I listened to your podcast with Jim Garrison talking about difficult histories. And I think this subject came up too of, you know, do we prepare teachers to teach these things enough? And I don't know if we do in teacher education. I, I also just can't help but think of um, Raphael Lemkin, who is the the, the man who, who coined the term genocide because he knew he needed a term. And I mean, he's one of those people you read about his life. I mean, it was this, it was like his sole purpose was to get people to care about this, to talk about it, to do something about it. And it weighed on him completely. And I think once the genocide convention was passed, like he literally just like slept for days. He was so emotionally worn out. And it's such a heartbreaking story to, to read about. And that's, if you want to learn about that um, in Samantha Power's book, the first chapter talks, talks about Raphael Lemkin and the struggle for the recognition of genocide. And so, so we'll get, again, a lot of these notes, a lot of these uh, uh, resources in the show notes, so you can keep exploring them. Lauren Harris and Stephanie Reed, we do appreciate the fact that you, uh, you came on to chat with us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be able to be on this podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. Doctors Harrison Reed, where can our listeners find you and your work online? So for me, for Lauren Harris, my ASU webpage, if you just search Lauren MacArthur Harris, Arizona State University has all recent publications and other things on there. And for me, it would be the exact same thing, only at the University of Montana. So if you search Stephanie Reed, University of Montana, you will find my scholarship. Although there are several pieces where I've worked with Lauren on this project, you'll also find my other work in the realm of literacy education and visual literacy in particular. Great. So we'll have people check that out. Fortunately, if you search online, you will not see a picture of me wearing my oversized University of Montana Grizzlies hat, which I don't know where that is. You don't have a picture? I, I don't think I ever took a picture. I mean, I think even at the time I maybe realized it was, it was a little shameful, but so no, just if you're thinking of university of Montana, just check out Dr. Reed's resources. That's much better topic. So, and thank you to both of you again for today. We certainly hope to keep exploring all the work that you both have done on this and in other subjects. And so we'll continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thank you so much for having us on. This is, this was a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun for creative and education, or you just want to chat, we get it. We're here. Tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook and, of course, in that other place, which I actually forgot which one it is. And if you haven't already, and really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And we always appreciate it if you write us a five-star review. That's how Apple's algorithms work. Five-star reviews. They show other people the podcast and people listen to it. It's a, it's a circle of life. Please help us out there. And we would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley Zach High Seitz. School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Feet. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.